Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. Well, it is NFL playoff season, and my point is not to mention the game last night. Uh, But as an aside, uh, if you watch an NFL game, uh, you know that one of the things you often see is that the same play shows up from a myriad of camera angles. Uh, Maybe a wide receiver grabs a pass near the sideline, falls out of bounds, and then there's just a succession of replays that show from different angles that particular play. And maybe one camera is focused on the receiver's hands and does he fully secure the ball as he lands on the ground? Is the ball tucked in? Is it held secure? Maybe that's one camera angle. And maybe another camera angle is where his feet exactly are when he lands. Does he touch down both toes inbounds? Did any part of his foot step over the line to make him out of bounds? Maybe that's another angle. Maybe another angle is sort of some of the offensive linemen who are blocking for the quarterback to have time to give that player a pass. There's numerous camera angles on exactly the same play. Now, last week, when we introduced the book of Revelation... We said that revelation can be taken a number of different ways. And this is something that we want to hold loosely. And we said last week that there are trunks of the tree. A trunk of the tree might be something like inspiration, that God's word is his brief truth. Another trunk of the tree is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are each fully designed Three persons of the Godhead, but one being, one essence. That's a trunk of the tree. The fact that we are made right with Christ through faith, that's a trunk of the tree. Then we said in a number of areas, there are kind of limbs or branch or twig areas where there might be various opinions or perspectives. And certainly Revelation falls into that. Even on our elder board here at Southridge, in our congregation, probably on our staff, there's different people of different perspectives. And so we want to hold this part loosely. We want to kind of hold the trunk and sort of the takeaways from Revelation as strong and secure, but we want to hold loosely how we perceive it. But the best that I can do is kind of share with, with you where I am, but again, something that I personally want to hold very loosely as well. We said last week that the rest of Revelation 6 through the end is, is largely comprised of seals, trumpets, and bowls. Each of them are open. We're going to look at each one of them and kind of discuss how that works. But there's difference of, of perspective as to, to how those things interrelate. I think the best way that I can make sense of it, as I said last week, is that rather than being sort of a linear timeline... It's actually so this recurring perspective of essentially the same thing. In other words, the seals are this perspective of the time from Jesus' ascension all the way to the final judgment and the recreation of the new heaven and new earth. 
The, the trumpets seem to take that same thing from a different angle, just like an NFL replay would. Maybe the balls take it from yet another angle, another look, another perspective. Now, we said this last week. It's less about an exact chronological script of an order of events for a particular time and more about a vivid, visual, symbolic portrayal of the recurring drama and continuously unfolding conflict between the forces of evil and God's ultimate rule. So again, this is something that I would hold loosely, but it seems to me the best sense that you can make is that the seals, the trumpets, the bowls are sort of different snapshots, different camera angles looking at essentially the same thing. It's Kind of interesting the way that shows up in Revelation 6 and 7, or chapters for this morning. At the end of Revelation 6, <clears throat> you have language in Revelation that clearly portrays the final judgment. It's final judgment language. Well, that also happens all the way at the end of the book. In Revelation 7, John actually uses the exact same wording that he uses in Revelation chapter 22 when he says all tears will be wiped away from their eyes. And so it seems that Revelation 6 and 7 is kind of almost a microcosm, again, of what we find in the trumpets, bowls, and the rest of the book. It's a microcosm of all that unfolds, looking for a different kind of angle. Well, not only that, we said it's also possibly recurring in when those events happen. We said that some people would say all these events happened in the past. Some would say they're happening presently. Some would say they're going to happen largely in the future. None of them would say exclusively any one of those positions, but, but largely. And so what the question is, do they happen in the past? Do they happen in the present? Will they happen in the future? Because my perspective would generally be that Revelation is this recurring theme. I would probably say yes to all of those. That yes, these are events that John's first century listeners understood and could see that they were being worked out in that time. They had real life experience with exactly what John was talking about. They're also sort of the activity of the entire category of age between Jesus' ascension and John's early listeners and today. I would also say that they portray as well the ongoing path until Jesus eventually comes again at his second coming. Now, just a couple of things before we kind of get into the meat of all this. Uh, Abby is going to come later and read Revelation chapter 6 and, verse, and chapter 7. Uh, in some ways, it's a little bit challenging because there's large chunks of Scripture. But on the other hand, I think as much as we can, I would just love to have every word of Revelation read here on a Sunday morning. And so even though that might be a little challenging to read whole chapters and some really large segments, I think it's something that we want to do because first and foremost, we want to hear what Revelation says. And sometimes actually just hearing it and letting it absorb into your being and just seeing the big picture helps you to kind of feel what John is saying. Revelation chapter 6 verse 1 says this, I watched... As the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Now, let me just stop there for a second. It just helps me a little bit to have some sort of visual perspective of what's happening here. 
And so it mentions the seven seals. Again, we talked about the sealed scroll back in Revelation 4 and 5. Uh, here's a picture on the screen of, of maybe what that looks like. When it says seals, there would be hot pieces of wax that were put on the document, often stamped with some kind of signet ring, and it meant that that seal was not to be opened, that document was not to be read by anyone other than the person who had put the seal on it. Here might be another perspective of how that works since there's seven seals. Maybe there's an outward seal with one document, one scroll, maybe another seal underneath with another scroll, kind of successive ones that further unfold as they're each opened. Could be something like that. But when we say seven seals, think of something that is sealed with hot wax. It has a signet, sign of a signet ring on it, but it's being opened, and what's being opened is then read, and the contents are being explained and told to us. That's what's happening. Notice who opens it. I watched as who opened? The lamb opened So everything that unfolds is not out of control. It's all under the authority of the Lamb, the person of Christ. It's all under him. Remember, during the Christmas season, we looked at Revelation chapter 4 and 5. And I think Revelation 4 and 5 are placed strategically before the rest of the unfolding of the book. Because John wants us to know, despite the chaos... Whatever devastation and destruction is coming, make no mistake about it. The throne room of heaven is occupied. The throne of heaven has someone on it, and it's the person of God. And so before you get the chaos and destruction and devastation of Revelation 6, you first, vivid in your mind, is the throne room of heaven... God seated on the throne. He's in charge, friends. He's in control. Everything that happens that seems chaotic and out of control is actually under the authority of God. If you remember, we said that 19 times in Revelation 4 and 5, the word throne is mentioned. 19 times. That's intentional. Because the rest of what unfolds happens under the authority of the throne room in heaven. So we're going to get into the seals. In Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, here's what it says. Therefore, there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. And so the first seal is a white horse seems to stand for conquest. In ancient Rome and ancient times, rulers rode a white horse as they went out on conquest. White was the color of conquest. can also be the color of purity. We talked about that. But in ancient civilizations, it was typically associated with the idea of conquest, and that's what seems to be happening here. This horse goes out to conquer. Later on, we find things like famine and death and bloodshed. Here's what Vern Poitras says in his book. He says, in the first century, the Roman Empire maintained control through conquest, which could include bloodshed and ensuing famine and death. Roman peace promised prosperity, 
But the reality was different. Conquest, bloodshed, famine, and death have also stalked the human race through the church age. And they may be expected to intensify in the final crisis leading to the second coming. I can't recall where I saw all the data previously. But our last century, friends, our last century was the bloodiest century that human civilization has ever seen. Even with all our advanced technology, even with all our international relationships and connections, the last century was the bloodiest century on planet Earth. Think of World War I. Think of World War II. Think of millions killed under Stalin. Millions of the Jewish population exterminated by the Nazis. Friends, we live in a world drenched in conquest and drenched in violence. Think of some of the current crises happening in Ukraine where lives are being killed. Continuing with verse 2, the second seal, a red horse. Another horse came out, a fiery red one. The rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. Rather than seeing, seeing, seeing the international conquest, this looks like civil unrest. They kill each other. Civil war, civil unrest. And just this morning, I got a notification on my phone. I look at the article, but apparently there was a shooting in Los Angeles. I think last night, 10 people were killed. Friends, the ground of planet Earth is soaked in blood of people killing each other. It's a red horse. Nancy Guthrie, in her book, and this is one of our recommendations uh, in our Revelation resources, she highlights the ACLED website, which is the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project. It actually collects real-time data on locations, dates, actors, fatalities, and types of all reported political violence and protest events around the world. Listen to some of these statistics. And these are very recent. They just updated it, I think, for the last two weeks. I had checked, I think, in the beginning of the week. There was old data. I checked on Friday. It was uploaded with fresh data. It's, it's very, very, very up-to-date. There were 2,042 political violence events in the last couple weeks. There were 2,149 demonstration events. There were 557 battle events. There were 867 explosions, remote violence events. There were 471 violence against civilians events. There were 147 mob violence events. There were 2,028 protest events. There are 121 violent demonstration events. Listen, friends. Our world, this planet, is caught in the violence of bloodshed. Third seal is a black horse. There before me, verse 5, there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hands. What do scales automatically point out? They typically point out out of bounds, injustice. The, the scales of true justice are to be pounced. But scales typify whether something is unjust, out of whack. A voice 
among the four living creatures, saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages. Wheat and barley, especially barley, was the food of the common person. Commentators think that the prices there roughly equate to about 10 times the normal price that would be charged during that time. But notice it doesn't stop there. It says, and do not damage the oil and the wine. What seems to be happening there is that it's demonstrating and pointing out the inequity, the inequity, the disparity between those who maybe use their power to gain wealth for themselves to continue to enjoy products like oil and wine, while those who are simply on a subsistence diet, barely trying to eat, are able to survive. That doesn't mean that all inequity is bad, certainly in the sovereignty of God. God has given some people more and some people less, simply as under the sovereignty of God. But many times what you find in our world, many times throughout international areas, often it's economic injustice that causes those who are poor to suffer. It's the powerful, those who have control of the resources that sort of provide for themselves. And yet those who are vulnerable and poor and weak are deeply impacted such that they can't even purchase their daily needs. Remember periodically, I think this was a couple of years ago, there were a number of articles around Christmas time of like when you hang your Christmas lights on a tree. Like, remember that probably many of them were put together by people serving in Chinese labor camps. Now, I don't know what to do with that. That's not to say make us feel guilty. It's not to say you shouldn't have Christmas. I have an iPhone in my pocket. And I realize that probably creates disparity of wealth and poverty in our world. I don't know what to do with all that. I'm just saying at least I want to wrestle with it. I want to understand that. I want to be sensitive to it. I want to try as much as I can to benefit those who may not have adequate means. I was reading some data about our world and the crisis of those who have little. Each year, about 9 million people, including 3.1 million children, die of hunger and poor nutrition. That means each day about 25,000 people, including more than 10,000 children, die from hunger-related causes. Nearly half of all deaths in children under the age of five are due to their bodies lacking basic nutrients. Some 854 million people worldwide are estimated to be undernourished, and high food prices may drive another 100 million into poverty and hunger. Currently, 2.2 billion people have limited access to safe drinking water. And by the year 2025, suggestions are that that number will only increase. What Revelation seems to be saying is that part of the outworking of God's judgment is sort of releasing us to the impact of our own evil destruction. And it causes hardship. It causes suffering. It causes lack in our world. Verse 8 is the fourth sail, the pale horse. There before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death. And Hades was following closely behind him. Later on in Revelation, we'll, 
read about death in Hades. They were given power over a fourth of the earth. Not all of it, a fourth of the earth. And as we see the trumpets and bowls unfold, you'll actually find that percentage goes up. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. And notice one point again. It says they were given power. Again, God is in charge. God is the authority. God is on the throne. And what he's largely doing is simply giving human beings over to their own natural destructiveness. Evil naturally causes destruction. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. Tim Chester, another resource that we highlight on our Revelation resource page. Here's what he says. If you're reading chapters 6 through 9 in the comfort of your own home in a quiet suburb, then they may well seem surreal. But if you stand back and view them from a side perspective, you'll find they capture the turmoil of history. They feel all too real. Listen, friends, we live in a world where God's judgment is often seen and simply him allowing the impact and the consequences of evil to be felt. It's part of God's judgment when we experience the consequences of our own destructive bent and our own, our own evil and wickedness that exists in us. The fifth seal, verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, it's the place of sacrifice, the souls of those who had been slain. Why have they been slain? Because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. The altar were, was where things were killed, animals were killed. Kind of is reminiscent of the fact that Jesus is our ultimate sacrifice, but as his followers, we're called to follow after him. And so these folks are under and around the altar as those who have given their life precisely because they have stayed faithful to the person of Jesus. I think it was just this week, Open Doors came out with their latest world watch list. If you remember back in the fall, we actually encourage you to go through the world watch list and pray for followers of Jesus in the 50 most persecuted countries in the world. And since 2010, the number of countries in the world watch list reporting high levels of persecution has increased, nearly doubling since the first list was compiled in 1993. So has the intensity of that persecution also increased. Open Doors research shows that more than 360 million Christians now suffer high levels of persecution and discrimination. Last year, 5,621 followers of Jesus were killed. 2,110 churches were attacked. 4,542 followers of Jesus were detained. Listen, friends, they're souls that are under the altar. They were faithful witnesses to the person of Jesus. You can picture John's original listeners hearing this. You can picture them thinking of loved ones they had lost to the violence of that time and the sense of hope and confidence that, yes, their loved ones were around the throne in heaven. 
Verse 11, then each of them was given a white robe. Just one quick comment on that. They were given a white robe, a robe portraying royalty, white, in this case, purity. And so those who the world deemed to be unworthy to live, that they would be better off of this earth because they're followers of Jesus, the, the throne room of heaven judges them differently. On earth, they're condemned to death. Their lives are taken because they're testimony of Jesus. In God's presence, they're given white robes. Listen, friends, the judgment of heaven is different than the judgment of earth. God calculates differently than human beings calculate. Then each of them were, was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants their brothers and sisters were killed just as they had been. Now, I don't fully understand this. Like I would say, man, like what is God doing? Until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters were killed as they had been. And in other words, for reasons that I cannot understand, God has somehow brought honor and glory as his followers Followers of Jesus give their lives and sacrifice to the God that they serve. Like I would expect that verse that, yeah, they're going to be, there's some that are going to be killed and then God's going to like straighten it out. Instead he says, yeah, they're going to be killed and, and there's more coming until the full number that God has ordained. Just a different perspective on those who leave their, lose their lives for the person of Jesus. I'm going to invite Abby up. Uh, she's going to read all of Revelation chapter 6. Uh, you're going to hear a lot of what I just mentioned in kind of like one reading. Uh, just kind of absorb it. Uh, use your imagination. Live inside of it. But then the rest of chapter 6 will also lead out of this to God's judgment. And so we've We've highlighted the first four seals, destruction, chaos, death, famine. Fifth seal shows that followers of Jesus are impacted by that devastation and by that destruction. Many of their lives are taken. That's the fifth seal. And so the new material of Revelation 6, later on, about three quarters of the way through Abby's reading, is going to pick up the judgment of God. Because God is not going to leave that destruction alone. He's not going to simply allow his redeemed people, followers of Jesus, their lives to be left un untouched. Judgment is going to follow. So you're going to hear that as Abby continues with Revelation 6. Uh, zone in, tune in as she reads Revelation 6. Revelation chapter 6. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. 
Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars from the, in the sky fell to the earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? Thank you, Abby. Um, as we've been saying throughout this series, where we go to interpret lots of this is back to the Old Testament. One of the rules that you always use is always interpret Scripture by Scripture. And so the four horses earlier, I forgot to mention this previously, they're actually alluded to in Zechariah. And so that's where you can find out some of the dynamics of, of the four horses. When we get to Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 and following, we get lots of very visual, vivid language of that John seems to be using to portray judgment. Uh, verse is 12 through 14. There's a great earthquake. The sun turns black. The moon turns blood red. Stars in the sky fall to earth. Figs drop from a fig tree. Heavens recede like a scroll. Every mountain and island was removed from its place. That's vivid language. How do we interpret that? Well, the best way that we do that is actually to go, again, back to the Old Testament. And what you find, Jeremy went over a couple of these things probably almost a year ago when we looked at some verses in 1 Peter. And what you find is much of that same kind of language is used when that which is permanent, particularly kingdoms and nations, suddenly are overthrown. Even when it talks about the sun and the moon, we regard them as permanent, and so that which human beings regard as permanent suddenly fall under the authority and judgment of God. In Isaiah chapter 13, verse 10, the overthrow of Babylon is talked about. Here's what it says. This is, again, vivid language for the overthrow of Babylon. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light. That's exactly the language Isaiah used to warn Babylon of God's coming judgment, that Babylon would be overthrown. Edom, 
is referenced in Isaiah chapter 34, verse 4. All the stars in the sky will be dissolved, and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. Again, that's Isaiah's language for God's coming judgment on the nation of Eden back in the Old Testament. What I find fascinating is in Jeremiah chapter 4, Jeremiah actually uses language to talk about the coming judgment of the nation of Israel itself as God uses Babylon and Assyria to bring his judgment on them. He, here's what he says in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 23. I looked at the earth, and it was formless and empty, and at the heavens, and their light was gone. Jeremiah says, it was formless and empty. The only other place where those two words show up is guess where? Genesis chapter 1 where the earth is formless and empty. What seems to be going on in the Old Testament and ultimately at the end time when Jesus brings his final judgment is simply this. Listen to this. Sin, evil, and wickedness has brought about the deformation of God's creation. God took the earth. He formed it and he filled it. He filled it with his image bearers, those who are human beings. He filled it with animal life and plant life. Sin, evil, selfishness, greed, pride, all of that has brought destruction on how God originally formed and filled planet Earth. Jeremiah says, I looked at the earth. And again, this is a direct reference to Israel's judgment in that day. It was formless and empty. In other words, evil was so rampant, it was destructive to God's creation. And so God was bringing his judgment on nations like Israel, nations like Babylon, and nations like Edom. So that language seems to portray the judgment of God. Verse 15 15. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, by the way, just reference this. Remember uh, this morning, actually, in Revelation 17, there's a verse that references, um, that references sort of the seven reasons to praise God. Revelation 5 references that all wealth and power and glory and goes on for seven things, seven reasons why God should be praised. There's seven things here. The, the all-encompassingness of God's judgment. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and then it says everyone else, and then slaves and free, hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Notice it says, they called. did they call out to God? Did they call out to the land? No, they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can withstand it? Listen, friends, God is holy, righteous, true, and just. Evil is real, destructive, and pervasive. Evil is intertwined into the fabric of our world and our lives. Evil must be dealt with. Evil must be judged. Revelation 6 is highlighting that. 
Evil makes, for, makes void that which God has formed and filled. Sin is destructive. Evil is destructive. It brings chaos to our world. It makes our planet drenched in blood. And it must be dealt with because this is God's created world. The last part of that simply says this. Who can stand? Who can stand? Abby is going to come up and read the rest of Revelation 7. Because Revelation 7 tells us who can stand. As God pours out his wrath, as he pours out his judgment on the way we have violated his creation and violated our lives, the question is, who can stand? And in Revelation 7, we find that there are people who can stand, not because of themselves, but because of the Lamb, because they belong to him. So Rabbi's going to read Revelation 7. Revelation chapter 7. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Thank you, Abby. So Revelation 7, verse 2. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east having the seal of the living God. Remember what we said a seal means? 
hot wax, typically signet ring, the impression of the ring in the seal, demonstrating the fact that no one else has the authority to open that seal except the one who sealed it. And so there is a seal that's placed on those belonging to God. This angel comes having the seal of the living God. There's protection. There's security. Those who are sealed by God through faith in Christ, those who belong to him, are sealed secure by him. We sang a song earlier in the service about seal my heart. Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you are united to Christ through faith, through the work of the Lamb on the cross, taking the curse and evilness of sin upon himself, if you are united to him through faith, you are sealed. You are owned by God. You are his child. Verse 4 says, Then I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. But what seems to be happening there is this. We have the 12 tribes. They're kind of named a little differently. We don't have time to get into all that. The first one, however, is Judah. Uh, Judah was not the oldest and the brothers that, by whom the 12 tribes were named. Seems like he is first, Judah is first, because Judah is the one through which Jesus came. The 144,000, the 144 seems to be 12 times 12. In other words, the 12 tribes of Israel times the 12 apostles. Those who represented God's people in the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel, and all of those who belong to God in the New Testament time through the work, his work in his church, times a thousand, 10 times 10 times 10, ultimate completeness. It's what that seems to be symbolizing, but with a particular emphasis on the fact that the only way that we today have the redemption of Jesus is because his work first started in the Old Testament. It was through the Old Testament nation of Israel that God birthed his plan of redemption. It was through them that he brought his plan to take on himself the curse of sin. And so it starts with the nation of Israel, the twelve leads into those who are followers of Jesus in the present day. 12 times 12 times 1,000, 144,000. Now, interestingly enough, we could go back earlier in Revelation, kind of like take a look at this combination. John hears the number. Remember, we saw early in Revelation, John heard a voice, and then he saw something else. And so what he heard in the voice and what he saw was the same thing. Seems to be the same thing is happening in John hears the number 144,000. That's what he hears. But what does he see? Verse 9 After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So he hears a number. 144,000 seeming to demonstrate all of God's redeemed people, Old Testament, New Testament, from all time. He turns and he looks. What does he see? He sees a multitude that can't be counted. So the multitude seems to be representative of the 144,000. Both of them together represent all of God's people 
for all of all time. And then there's songs of praise. And the chapter concludes in verse 17 with this. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Many of them have suffered. They've lost their lives. But God is their shepherd. He's with them. He gives them living water. And he wipes every tear from their eyes. It's exactly the language that we have all the way at the end in Revelation chapter 22. I'm going to invite our team out, and as they come out, I want you to kind of tune in here pretty, pretty, pretty tightly. I think what we just saw is something that Paul maybe summarizes in different kinds of language in Romans chapter 8. Paul is one who is faithful to the testimony of Jesus. Paul served. Paul was beaten, imprisoned. Paul was hungry. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 8. Friends, I've read these verses to many in our congregation in hospital beds and deathbeds. I've read it to a lot of people going through a lot of stuff. Paul says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He gives us a hypothetical question. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Sounds like the stuff that we just got done reading about in Revelation 6. Paul says, for your sake, we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. It's Paul saying that. Paul's saying, before this world, I'm just considered as a follower of Jesus to be slaughtered. Again, the question, who can separate us from the love of God? Trouble, hardship, famine, any of that stuff? Here's what he says in verse 27. Listen to this. No, none of that stuff. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, friends, listen, listen to this. We are not promised ease. You're not promised a trouble-free life. In fact, it's quite the opposite. 
We're told to expect hardship, difficulty, suffering for the sake of Christ. And Paul says, come what may, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You, if you are united to Christ in faith, are sealed with God's seal. And nothing can touch the fact that you belong to him. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And here's the deal. It's not because you've got a great grip on him. It's because he has a grip on you. And so stand with me. We're going to sing this song. That, that is, this song doesn't say, I will hold fast. The song says, he will hold me fast. So let's sing the song and worship to our God who is holding us fast. Let's sing together. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the temperate prevails, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful Raise with him to end his life. 
that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Take our hearts and seal them. Thank you for holding us fast. Thank you that whatever happens to us in the story of our lives now can impact one iota our eternal destiny of living forever in your blessed presence. May we give ourselves to the Lamb who gave himself to us. And it's in the Lamb's name, Jesus, we pray. And everyone who agreed said, Amen. Our prayer team will be down here to the right. We'd love to pray for you. God bless. Follow the lamb. Have a great afternoon.